Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Operation History, a podcast where history is more than what you remember. Tonight, the digital table is filled with David. Hello, everybody. Maria. Hello. And Derek. Hello. And through the process of elimination, I am Lauren. In this episode, we will be discussing shopping in Chicago. Maria, take it away. Alrighty, thank you. So I would just like to preface that um, this was not the intention for this month's episode. Uh, the reason why this episode is coming to you so late towards the end of the month is because I was trying to collaborate with a guest speaker who was going to come on and talk about a completely different topic, but through, through you know, conflicts and scheduling on our end and their end. Unfortunately, we could not get this guest on the episode, but we are planning to have them on much further down the line. So don't worry, that content is to come. So with that, I'm not going to lie, I was kind of left scrambling. So we're, I figured, hey, it's March, it's Women's History Month. Let's talk about women. And better yet, let's talk about a book. So I know normally on the show, we don't really talk about book reviews or we don't, we don't really do book reviews. But I had read this book for a course a couple of months back. I had to do a book review and the book is called A Shopper's Paradise, How the Ladies of Chicago Claimed Power and Pleasure in the New Downtown by Emily Remus, who is an associate professor of history at the University of Notre Dame. And it was published by Harvard University. And despite being published by an academic press, the book was, a, it was a nice read. It wasn't too dense. I wasn't like, oh my God, my brain hurts when I was done with it. And it was really insightful. And the idea of women changing the geographical structure of an area of Chicago and it influencing the laws through something like shopping and the pursuit of leisure is the type of stuff I live for. <laughs> I love stuff like this. So before we dive into it, does anybody want to say anything? Have you guys heard about this book? I know, I know I've talked about this book quite a bit because I really liked it. But besides that, had you guys heard about this book or anything like this? What What's everybody's input? Because I've been talking for a lot. Only from you. Um, I think it's safe to say that I am not living in the same time period as everyone else. So no, I have not read it. It's fair. No, typically if I see something from around this period, especially from the Chicago lens, it's normally environmental. So consumerism in that time period is not normally my forte. Uh, I, I had seen a couple things of this uh, era, but nothing specifically diving into uh, this uh, deep into things like urban sprawl, changing landscapes, anything like that. This is kind of a kind of a a newer idea for me to explore. So I'm very interested in seeing where this goes. Me too. No, okay, yeah. So that's cool. It's a fairly new book. 
It was published in 2019, which is one of the reasons, which is one of the many reasons why when I was choosing a book for the book review that we had to do, because the class I took, it, it was a methods class. So it wasn't so much a content like that I had to find a specific book for uh, because it's a methods class. As long as the professor approved the book, uh, you could pick a book on a wide variety of topics and he approved this one and he liked that it was new too. So this is the one I went with. So kind of like the author, before she jumps into the first chapter of the book, I am going to start off uh, with an introduction as well. So uh, I'm just going to be talking about what she writes, kind of like a book review. I don't know. If you want to go out and read this, this is kind of a spoiler because we're going to be talking about everything that happens in the book. But I digress. I highly recommend reading it. Um, in the beginning, before she jumps into the first chapters, she kind of sets up the context in the world of which these women and their uh, life was taking place. Chicago at the end of the 19th, early of 20th century, especially this area where the loop is, uh, was predominantly a male space. It was very industrial, filled with stock houses and slaughterhouses, industrial warehouses, you had factories. But this is also the city center as well. You have shopping and, you know, basic everything that basic things that every city has, like bakeries and stores and markets, both good market goods, food markets. So seeing women in this space wasn't out of the ordinary because they would have to be there if they were, you know, conducting shopping for the household or stuff they needed. It was when these women started using the area for the, for the idea of shopping for pleasure, because that's something you have to talk about too at this time period, because before this idea of, you know, a disposable income, Shopping wasn't something people usually did for pleasure. So people would go get what they needed and only really what they needed and come home. Now at this point, and especially in this area of Chicago, uh, like other cities that are forming all over the country, you have women who are only going into this downtown, predominantly male space not because they need something, but because they want to be there because they are going shopping. That is, that is their, you know, they're not, they're not picking up shoes for little Susie or meat from the butcher. They're just going into town because it's something to do. And that's when men were like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like you can't, no, no, no. This is, this is our space. That sounds so I mean, I'm just like so not surprised that's like women are doing things to make themselves happy. Anarchy. But no, you're not like that was the reaction. That was the reaction was like, this is and this is wild. Go ahead, Derek. Due to the Chicago fire uh, that had happened happened in the late 1800s. Do you think that might have caused some of this to be able to happen, um, considering the majority of their downtown completely burnt down with about 17,000 buildings burning down? Uh, they could completely rewrite the entire city, pretty much. Mm. So do you think that that might have influenced uh, some of this uh, movement? Probably. I don't 
I don't unfortunately uh, remember if she writes about that in the book. She might have, but I, I something, you know, just kind of common sense, anything on that type of scale in a geographic setting, I would imagine down the line that that would have absolutely something to do. So I, I was reading some stuff earlier, and while it's not exactly about women, but it does talk about consumer culture in Chicago from 1880 to 1930s, when these malls were being rebuilt, like JCPenney and um, Sears, in Chicago, they were refitting these malls to be more appealing to women. So they had more, they had more relaxing areas for people to take a load off, carpets and all that. So and the hope yes. was for them to stay around and spend more of that money, you know, spend the money that they had. Um, yes. And, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. And no, so I mean, it's interesting because one, you do have the Great Chicago Fire, but number two, this is the real, you know, this isn't the first time we've seen a market revolution, but this is one of the first times we're seeing a market revolution where women are being factored into the consumer climate. And that's one of the things that makes it so big because. Uh, later in the book, we're going to talk about how actual political laws and like politics got involved in this because naturally that was the men's first place to look for a defense. But there was an uh, they were at odds with the city because from shopkeepers perspective and from a commerce perspective, you like you said, you have these women who are coming into the city to spend money. And like you said about creating the space for women, shopkeepers and store owners caught on really quickly that, oh, these women want to come and spend money. Well, then let's like, that's how windows, that's how like, I believe in one of the books chapters, she uh, spends a little bit of time talking about window displays and how like window displays were changed to attract women like they they realize very quickly that if women want to come and spend money here, that's more money for us. Let's have them. And the men were like, "What are you doing? How dare you? Like, what do you, you women without a male escort shopping? Ugh. Shopping, spending money because that's another thing you have to think about during this time. I don't remember. I know there was a movement at this time that the idea of spending money on stuff you didn't need, it was like excessive greed. Like the idea of shopping to accumulate stuff was frowned upon. And I have heard that this sounds really terrible because does anybody else know about this? Because I have heard, I don't know what it's called, but there was a movement at that time to like the idea of shopping to own stuff is like, it's, I, it's considered taboo. Like, yeah, I don't recall the exact movement name, but it's like, it's it like, sounds like something out of the second, it sounds like something out of the second great awakening. Like when it sounds like something from temperance movement or any one of those, it, when people are very, trying to yeah. hoarding like wealth and being prideful and yeah it's akin those. it's akin to that and on that level so as usual with history there's stuff that's multi-layered here <clears throat> it's not just one factor that's going into people's arguments but moving forward the first chapter is called moneyed women and the downtown and this chapter kind of, you know, furthers the world building and topic introduction that was kind of previously done in the forward and the introduction of the book. 
she goes into so she one thing i really liked about this book is she looks at women from across the chicago society because not only is she looking at elite women and average women but she also includes women of color and that to me was something i really appreciated because there's this terrible stereotype that you know anything that it's an old outdated stereotype thankfully that you know women of color at the time weren't doing anything important or anything. And it's a new scholarship like this that says, no, that's not true. They've just been ignored because I'm going to show you exactly what they were doing. So again, she looks at women from across the society. But again, in the first chapter, in the beginning, she kind of starts off with some of the more elite women of society who would have been the women who are paying social calls and majority of these women are, you know, why the, oh, go ahead, D- Derek. I was like, why did my screen shift? <laughs> I know, I don't, I don't want you to stop. No, please this. interrupt me. Do you think that considering in the mid 1800s, suffrage movement had just really started to gain ground? Do you think that there is a part of that anti- normalcy kind of movement between these women that are saying I don't care if this is not seen as normal or what is right to do by society's standards I want to practice my ability to do this yes yeah I that's a that's that's kind of a large theme throughout the book yeah and you know that's one of the reasons why men were probably and most likely off put by women too, is because one of the things she talks about, like when she's setting this book up is, you know, women are, these are my words, not hers, but in the eyes of men at that time, you know, women are already pushing the envelope and now they want to invade. Cause that's another thing too, that we have to remember about this time. A woman's place was very much in the home. And this is something that trickles over from like Victorian society in Great Britain from what I've read and learned there is the outside world was the man's sphere. The domestic sphere was where the woman belonged. And it was the woman's job to keep the domestic sphere in order and the man's job to keep the, you know, societal sphere in order. And that was it. It was never supposed to change. Like women are not supposed to cross over that threshold and be a societal force because it's the outside world is too harsh for them. You know, they have to, they have to make sure that they keep, especially the children on the straight and narrow so that they can grow up to be productive and responsible members of society. So you mentioned, you may get to this. So if you do just, you know, ignore me, but so you mentioned that the author is really conscious of having a more full story with the inclusion of people of color, which I think it's mm-hmm. fabulous because that is mm-hmm. not seen a lot, especially in this time period. I think if anything, it's a separate book altogether. Anyway, oh, yeah. but, um, so are you, go- you might be getting into it, like I said, but what differences in between like the consumer culture did you see, if any? She does, she does talk about that. I think in one of, I think she mentions, cause she starts talking about drugstores and how drugstores started, you know, 
carrying a wider range of products, I think at one point, but she, I think at one point she does talk about the levels of customer service between people of color and even elite members of society versus average members of society. And then she, you know, explores the perception from people of color and how they were being treated in the stores. So I believe at some point she does talk about the discrepancy in service. Yeah, I'm just going to read the book. <laughs> you know, it's really kind of what I'm saying in this episode is just go read the book. You know, go, go read this book. It's really a great book. And is, I, could I looked into it. This is her first published book, so... It is. I look and it's forward a, to see if she has anything else to uh, that she's working on. Like I said, it was well written. Despite being published by an academic press, I feel like you don't need to be studying a master's degree to read and understand and enjoy this book. It's very well written. It's it's got an easy flow. It's got pictures, guys. How many? She books has a ever Twitter. Read? That it does. She the has a Twitter. I just follow her. There you go. Look at that. Go on. No, I, I think that that's a valid point, though, as you pointed out, Maria. Occasionally, there are books that, while great in content, kind of scare away, especially even undergrads for the history courses or anyone who isn't trained in historical archives, how to actually access things, how to try to understand the information that is being passed along. And it's books like these that can pass along information while still being a decent right that really kind of encapsulate what it means to be a historian because sometimes you kind of lose the forest for the trees there and oh, yeah. you, you love to write about everything you can possibly see in uh, in history but sometimes it gets so much that it's well overwhelming for a lot of uh, common folks. Um, Heck yeah. There have been, I'm studying my master's and there are times I walk away from some material that is assigned and I'm just like, ow, <laughs> my brain hurts. Small brain, big words. Yeah, this is like the fondness of what you're referring to this book is incredible. And it kind of reminds me of, I think you've read it to Maria for a class. It was the Benjamin Carp book. Mm, yes. That's enough. One day um, I'm gonna get to that the book too. Tea party? Party. It's the Boston it's incredible. It is. It, it's a on. fun read. We're gonna it's... name drop Benjamin Carp's book right now, too, because I'm gonna get the title of that uh, book. Defiance of the Patriots. I think. Thank you. Please say that again. I can't believe that just I just did that. Defiance I mean, hey, of the Patriots. Defiance of the Patriots. By Benjamin Carr. If you know to jump topics really quickly for a hot second, if anybody out there is interested in a different perspective on the Boston Tea Party or taking something that is so well known in history as the Boston Tea Party during the American Revolution and really doing a deep dive into the some how the event extends beyond that one night as far as the lead up and the aftermath. Awesome, awesome book. He is a great author too. He's working on another book right now and I don't remember what it's about, but I'm excited for that book to come out because he's another example of a great author like Emily Remus, who is a historian who 
he his work is great and again you don't need a phd to read it and understand it but getting back to remus and women in chicago so basically that's what chapter one kind of does she talks about how the infrastructure of the loop area in Chicago is changing to accommodate women where you see more soda fountains, theater houses, hotels, and all of this infrastructure that is geared towards shopping for leisure amongst the banks and the factories and the slaughterhouses and the, you know, more industrial sector of society, the men's stuff. And at the time, men where we, we believe in gender equality here on Operation History. But the men at this time really felt threatened. And their goal was to, like I said, fire back in one of the ways that they understood how to fire back. And that was through politics. The way they did that was to attack the hoop skirt. And that takes us to chapter two in the book, which is the hoop skirt war of 1893. Do you guys know what a hoop skirt is? Yes. Okay, Lauren does. <laughs> do, do the gentleman here on Operation History. Derek and Dave's giving me a thumbs up. Way to chime in, guys. All right, Lauren, tell me what a hoop skirt is for our gentleman over here. It's literally just like the poofy skirt. That's, like, thank you. Yeah, that's just like out what it is. there. It's like, yeah. It's those big ass skirts. Like, um, have you guys watched, I know Maria has, have you watched Enchanted with Amy Adams? Okay, well, she gets married and her wedding dress <laughs> any, is a hoop skirt. Any Disney princess, especially the older ones, have a hoop skirt. So going, you know, getting getting back to the book, women's fashion back then in society Everything down from the style, the color, the fabric, that was a cultural, social, and political statement that said everything about her that you needed to know just from looking at her. Remus goes into all of this and she segs, she, she ties it together perfectly, being that fashion, because it was so important and it showed what kind of women were in downtown, because uh, again, they were all women, but Fashion was also something that women were going downtown for because again, we're going, we're going shopping. We're going shopping for clothes. Men were less enthused about that. They saw the hoop skirt as another threat of dominance. And they literally were afraid that women were going to clog up the walkways because their skirts were so big. That's fair though. I mean, it's fair, <laughs> but you're, you're, you're not the reason why they were doing it, but like, <laughs> no, yeah, they, they, they don't want women and their skirts, but it's a fashion trend that becomes a public concern and a source of political backlash over a skirt. Go ahead, Derek. You know, this, this just reminds me so much of about, I would say 50, 60 years later on in this uh, the timeline, zoot suits. Mm -hmm. um, African Americans and uh, other people of color, um, as well as small minorities of white Americans, had used these very tacky, very uh, ostentatious suits to express themselves. And they too were completely persecuted because 
they were seen as that that outside the norm um just like these women with the hoop skirts and again the the people persecuting had claimed it was because they were using too much fabric during wartime mm-hmm. not because they wanted to just you know outright persecute minorities which they obviously had done mm. um but it's a, it's 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 a, it's a very interesting parallel because it right at the 1880s it's women that are getting uh, persecuted for you know wearing these fancy dresses and then not even 60 years later you have african americans and you know um hispanic americans that are out in places like los angeles uh louisiana all these like wonderful big cities of culture that are trying to express themselves and yet are getting completely completely persecuted for it so i i i find a very interesting parallel there that's one of my favorite things about history is it doesn't there's a great quote and i think it's by mark twain of all people but history doesn't repeat itself but it sure does rhyme and that that's what i have to say to you what's up dave having this economic power feels like political power because you vote with your wallet just like you vote with your feet i was just gonna you vote with your feet just like you vote with your feet, you vote with your wallet, right? So, you know, these these companies feel like they have to cater to X, Y, and Z because they see the potential for women as long-term consumers. We've, we've talked about how, especially during this time, men don't want to be seen in shopping malls. They, they can't be seen in shopping centers throughout the day. That's not their place. So in order for companies to survive and to really thrive, they have to find a new market, which is the women at that point. They kind of have to change policy on some level, even the government doesn't like it, in order to bring in or have an influx of women. And that's through advertising and other things as well. Well, I think it's too that, you know, you have to remember societal norms and whatnot. The men went to work. If you were, you know, a woman, a woman was going to go shopping for the house before a man was if a woman didn't have someone to do it for her. But again, even elite women, this is bringing, this is bringing women of all walks of life, of all ranks of society into one area. And even that is kind of controversial in some ways at this time, because, you know, and, and, and okay, so to kind of segue back to the hoop skirt, that idea of conjugation and conjugating these skirts could range from two feet to six feet. Think about the size of an average sidewalk. If you have like three or four women just sitting there talking, and I'm not saying that, you know, it's bad that they're conjugating, but to a certain degree, there is a level of common sense where if you have three women or four women conjugating and their skirts all range within a a width of two to six feet, yeah, they're going to take up the sidewalk. And, you know, in the streets, you have trolley cars, you have horse-drawn carriages, you, you just have tons of traffic. So there is a safety concern. But like Derek said, is this the real reason they're going after women? Is a safety concern? Or is there something else here? Cities, um, will, all, cities and politicians will always use the safety card whenever they want something done. I am going to... I am going to go ahead, Derek. I'm not going to comment on that because I may or may not agree with you. 
I, w- I will say, um, especially in the 1800s, late 1800s era, before Ford really came around, the streets were honestly supposed to be public ground. People had a right to walk in the middle of the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though carriages were there, you had the right until eventually the automobile when you know jaywalking was invented as a thing because uh ford was mad that people were suing because their cars were killing people walking in the street it's a but again if you have four women they're taking up all of this area You're, you're taking up 24 feet of area if you're walking side by side that's 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 more than like half a road if not the entire road if they were just going out for their sunday walk you know it's it's a large amount of area and i'm i'm not one to uh try on a a wonderful uh hoop skirt but Mm -hmm. i'm assuming that it's not very maneuverable so you know you can't really jump out of the way of a horse very easily no it wasn't very maneuverable it wasn't very comfortable and it was kind of awkward but i think one of the bigger things that i forgot to mention is that the men are attacking the hoop skirts but women weren't exactly running out to buy these contraption i'm gonna call it a contraption because that's what it is for lack of a better word it has like a structure on the inside it has like a skeleton like a car yeah it can't just a car and, and at one point she talks about that, like this thing was extremely uncomfortable and like the more women wore it, some of these women were getting like stomach and spinal issues from just the structure of this thing sitting on their body. But I, I digress, we're moving on. Yeah. But It was the principle of the thing. It just was. What, what did you say, Dave? Really having like all that width and weight on your, on your hips and on your lower back would cause hip and back injuries. I would never have guessed. Nah, you fine. Walk it off. Walk it off. Helps build character. That's it. Helps build character. Puts hair on your chest. One of the things, you know, the men are attacking these hoop skirts, but another thing that Remus points out is the hoop skirt had come in and out of fashion like several times. They were popular during the Civil War and then they went through a yo-yo phase. People liked them, then they didn't like them. And, you know, again, it's this massive skirt that did, because of its massiveness, it did provide a series of social functions when, you know, we wanted to keep men and women at reasonable distances. It did provide certain social functions in that sense. And this is something else that she talks about in the chapter. Think about a turn of the century, massive industrial city at this time. And every potential thing that could be on the ground that if this girl now has this massive skirt... What's uh? What's, my my co-hosts are being very silent, but their their physical reactions are quite accurate. Yeah, I mean, considering everything that was going around in the late eighteen hundreds, like you have people like nearly coughing up a lung of tuberculosis, just like like puddles of blood. Like you could have, considering there's horse-drawn carriages. You know what's going to be on that road very, very often. There's just going to be big old piles of you know what. Um, right, which is why the hoop skirt, that was like another thing that they were saying. 
it if so the 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 skirts at the time if you weren't wearing a hoop skirt they would puddle and drag through the ground whereas the hoop skirt thinking of that massive cage on your waist it causes the the dress to sit at the bottom or the top of your ankles the top of your feet however you want to call it and it, it would be allowing it to be clean and hygienic even women knew that these things were awkward and they're like Nah. When you have to have a thing that's pretty much the same invention they used for like the rigid air balloon, you, it's not like that's not really a great, you know, for formal wear. That, that's pretty I, much what they did for Zeppelins and dirigibles. You really don't want to have that on your body. I never thought of it like that. But so that was it. They men saw men eventually decided that you know the only way we can save women from themselves you know because they're helpless to every trend out there that comes their way and the re-emergence of the hoop skirt which is this clunky large bone crushing thing is you know we have to pass a legislation that would ban the sale of hoop skirts and you know what if we ban the sale of hoop skirts they won't come downtown or you know so they thought this, this bill, as she goes on to talk about, or whatever, this proposal was met with laughter in some ways. She kind of chuckled it off and others took it seriously. Again, the hoop skirt makes an appearance. It gets into consumer rights. Because, you know, with the hoop skirt comes, uh, and in, I don't think it's chapter three. Okay, so, you know, the hoop skirt kind of segs its way into another fashion piece that is flaunted and worn by women. And that is the theater hat, which that is chapter three, consumer rights and the theater hat problem. And basically what, in a nutshell, what chapter three talks about, part of the fashion in both America and Great Britain at this time was really large hats, especially for women. And when they would go to the theater, these hats are not coming off and you have to remember stadium style seating is not a thing yet so for the most part even with if even if some places did have stadium style seating these hats are so big that if a woman sits in front of you and especially if you're somebody who's short you can't see over it and the thing is like these women are not just coming to evening shows with their husbands they're starting to go to matinees they're starting to step out at all times of the day with with or without male escorts with other women as friends to take in shows again it's something that is predominantly associated with women aka large hats where men feel threatened and encroached on which is as you can tell a theme throughout this book where they're like hey theater hats is the next thing we're going to go after I'm sorry. It's so stupid. It's not stupid, but that's that's what I mean. Like, this is real. Like, that's the thing. Like, this happened. This is, this is the type of history that I live for because it's, again, it's showing the, the masculine thought process at the time is that men were so desperate to keep women out of their realm of society that they're going to go after theater hats. And again, it sounds stupid, but this happened. I'm sorry, but how... Like, how fragile is your masculinity if you are offended and afraid of a hat? Or These guys a skirt? really fragile. 
get well, you, you get it together. You have to think about <laughs> for as many many years, um, the voting population of the United States was white landowning men, mm-hmm. and they held on to that for a long long, long while time. until eventually after the Civil War, African Americans were given the right to vote. Now, Jim Crow laws still definitely, you know, hit that back in a bunch of different places. Um, but and that just, had already been a huge concession for these, these huge, like this huge block of white straight males that are going, oh my gosh, I need to keep. Don't forget, not to cut you off, this is also the era of Jim Crow. Some of this yeah. is very heavily in the Jim Crow area. Exactly. Um so they've already lost this whole um, this whole monopoly they've had on political and um, otherwise um, societal authority, and now women start talking about also wanting to be incorporated in this freedom that they had they had created. It it automatically is setting off triggers in these people that had largely had all of this power for hundreds of years and immediately they're seeing power slip through their hands because other people are gaining that power and eventually actually gaining authority over themselves um this is a huge blow to these people that yeah i'm not surprised they're trying to pull out any single stop they can whatever they can put up as a signpost in front to make sure that someone else has less authority so they can have more it happens to this day still a thousand percent because don't forget because women can't vote legally cannot vote yet at this time so like dave said uh, I was chuckling because I love that phrase, vote with your feet, because somebody instilled that in our heads. But that is a thing, like women could not vote. So the idea of purchasing power and, you know, congregation, and I think it, um, I'm not going to go into it too deep. I'll let the book speak for itself when you read it. She talks about women being or not being represented when these hoop skirts and theater hats were coming under political fire. and. You know, at that point, everything like uh, I see Dave has his hand raised, so I am going to turn it over to Dave before I ramble and just reiterate what Derek already said. Also think about this time period where the amount of stuff being produced and bought is at its highest point since most of their most of them were kids. If mm-hmm. that Americans also at this time are really trying to grasp with, all right, well, how much is too much? One. To how much time should we spend there, you know, buying things and accumulating the stuff? Mm-hmm. And three, what does society look like with all these new shopping centers, with all these new factories that are now clogging up our, our cities? Right. So I think there's also that kind of not just the the cultural shift mindset that Derek was mentioning earlier, but also when it comes to urban planning. Because now you have these shopping areas developing that for a city that may not be built, and I mean that literally built to handle all these people and all this stuff being built, and you have these hoop skirts that take up that momentum or that size, and if you have a lot of people doing that, then yeah, that's where that friction is going to come in. 
Mm. Um, but also local governments were trying to figure out, all right, well, what do we do here? Um, do we regulate this? Do we not regulate this? Is this within our power? So those are the other, I think, commercial questions that are being kind of thrown around too. Absolutely, because now there is that commercial space and there is that commercial contention because who does the government have to appease more? The politicians and the males who you know, want to continue to dominate society or the other, the other minority, the women and, you know, shopkeepers and stuff who want to keep having women come and spend money. If you think theater hats and hoop skirts were a big whole uproar, chapter number four, the tippling ladies and public pleasure is all about <gasps> women, I, right? It's going to get real spicy up in here because not only women- That sounds dirty. You know, honestly, to these people, it was, this was just as dirty as what you're thinking because this chapter basically talks about how not just women, but upper class, quote, respectable women were comfortable drinking in public. You're going to give me a case of the vapors right now. I'm telling you, it was, you know, they want to drink in public and go to lunch and you know, smoke. You can't do this, but I'm clutching my pearls. I'm telling you, it's, that's another thing too. We joke and how, I mean, Lauren, I don't, I don't usually drink when we do these because I have the alcohol tolerance of a two-year-old, but are you, uh, Derek's drinking right now. I'm, I'm drinking water. I'm drinking water too, but normally you have something to drink too, right? Yeah, sometimes. Okay. That's the thing. You have to think about this. Like if women did consume alcohol during this time, it was done in the privacy of their own home. It was never flaunted. And that was just, that was not a a female thing. That was a male centric thing. And the idea that these women, especially again, upper-class women, because upper-class women were always the virtues of society. It's not even that you have Sally from around the corner drinking. It's that you have Mrs. So-and-so sitting with three of her other respectable friends having a, you know, a cocktail while they enjoy something. And, you know, heaven forbid if they decide to smoke a cigarette too. So now at this time, we're kind of in like the 1900s. We've crossed the thresholds from the 1800s because the hoop skirt war was 1893. So now we've, we've crossed that border. So it's, it's been a little bit of time reverends got in on this because she talks about uh in one of the things that she talks about in my notes that I have is you know reverend Frederick E Hopkins of the Pilgrim Congregational Church was appalled that women were drinking openly in public without shame and he led a sermon condemning these practices saying how it was the sign of the times and a complete lack of respect and that the upcoming generations were just, oh, they were. It's they were true. So like, it's interesting that was the, not to talk about the pilgrims, but like mm. the way that they saw it, even within the church 400 years ago, first generation were the most holy or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then as they saw their children grow, they were like, oh man, every generation is just going to get more like heretic and out there and doing their own thing and becoming um, becoming what Quakers? Oh, don't wish century is a fun time to be anything except for congregationalist. So it's just like interesting to see, like, literally, the church has not changed at all. Being like, women are doing things that they like, and therefore, I'm upset. And 
the end times are coming clearly because y'all are acting a fool. Yep. 100%. Just wait until the 1950s. 1920s. Then the 20s were around the corner. Before the 20s come, before the 50s come, the 20s have to come. Before I uh, say something, Derek, did you need to say something? Are you good? Again, uh, we haven't talked about it much. We talked about how she mentions people of color. They were given poor service, or sometimes they were completely ignored by the staff members because of their race. And that's if they were even able to get seated. Some places, like some of these lounges or, you know, restaurants, I don't believe they were bars, but like an early predecessor to a lounge restaurants, they would deny African-Americans access altogether. And again, this is going back to that Jim Crow stuff. Go ahead, Derek. Again, you have to think this is right when, you know, the clan is building up. Mm -hmm. This is like the height of everything that, you know, the, the, the Southern apologist strategy, everything that can be bad for African-Americans post post uh, freedom is happening right in the twenties. You have in the twenties or a little earlier, bit, a little bit earlier, like between the 1900, 1900 and the 1920s, because mm-hmm. you have Wilson as president who mm-hmm. screens birth of a nation, which is the clans like birth video practically. Um, so it's, it's uh, you have the clan March in Washington, DC that they're freely allowed and actually celebrated to march down the streets of, you know, our capital. It's not surprising that there are people that are being not allowed to like be mm-hmm. certain places or not allowed to be, you know, segregated because yeah, that's exactly how the the nation was at that point. It was echoing throughout all of society because in our nation's capital, it was commonplace mm-hmm. you also had a president that said that birth of nation was the greatest thing since sliced bread thanks wilson no woodrow Wilson. i have so much to say about him but it's not that's the for a different episode because again getting back to the book there's the flip side too that you have the societal reaction to these women but the flip side is the establishment because at some point the question was posed to the establishment why are you letting these women in? It's not that they were some of these women, for some of them, their status as moneyed women helped reinforce this idea of, yeah, I'm drinking in public. I, I, I'm doing this. And if all of these women if, if, if Mrs. So-and-so, who is the elite of society, is doing this, then that's okay. I'm going to do this, too. So the establishments ha- wanted these upscale women to come in and, yes, sit at the table in the most center of the room. Please, please be seen because it, it paves the way for women of lower ranks of society or anybody who was not in her social category to be allowed be allowed in. This is also where you get different types of drinks coming in because women, beer was a predominantly male drink and it was considered improper. Oh, there you go, Dave. It was considered improper for respectable women to be seen drinking, drinking period. But you know, if they're going to drink, they, they really can't drink beer. So 
cocktails became a thing. They were called concoction. Literally, that's where cocktail, the word cocktail, I believe she goes into this. That's the connection of cocktails is that these restaurants and lounges or whatever they were to continue to attract women who can't drink beer, they would advertise special concoctions and they would be chasers mixed with alcohol. Thus, the cocktail is born. So whiskey, rose water, bitters, juices, carbonated water, all wine. These were all considered suitable for the feminine palate. So that's that's kind of what that chapter is. Oh, and then everybody's favorite topic in chapter five is marshers, prostitutes, and shopping ladies. Yes. She talks a lot about racial stigmas in this one. Chapter six is the traffic of women. And there's a conclusion. So those are the, those are the chapters in the book. At one point, she starts to talk about, uh, especially in the last two chapters, she talks about race, racial stigmas. You know, you can tell by some of those titles, it gets into some of the seedier topics for both people of color and white women, because you know, they were there too. If this at all interests you, go out and get this book. Go buy this book. It is, get it from your library, buy it. It is 100% worth the read. I will put a link in the show notes for the Amazon. Thank you. There we go. That's all. Not going to lie. That's how I bought mine. I needed that two-day shipping and Amazon always comes through. This was very interesting. I enjoyed this talk. I am going to read things in the back. Um, A shopper's paradise creatively reframes our understanding of consumer culture through a series of brilliantly executed case studies of women in commercial public spaces in Chicago. Emily Remus highlights the interaction of pleasure, power, and danger. Drawing on forgotten conflicts over hats, hoop skirts, drinking, and other subjects, Remus highlights the political nature of debates about the right to consume. With special attention to legal cases, this book brings to life rich and original archive. There is no book on consumer culture on this delightful study. Lawrence B. Gilkman, author of Buying Power, A History of Consumer Activism in America. And then A Shopper's Paradise is original and convincing contribution to our understanding of gender in public space in American cities. Remus argues that elite and middle-class women's use of the public downtown landscape of theaters, cafes, shops, and the streets as sites of consumption and pleasure over time transformed common awareness of the purpose of the downtown and women's rights to the city as citizens. That is Jessica Ellen Sewell, author of Women in Everyday City, Public Space in San Francisco, 1890 to 1915. And there are other ones here. There is one, uh, there is a write-up from another author. So again, it's published by an academic press. It's received praise from other authors who are experts or have written about consumer culture. Again, I really liked this book. For a book I needed to pick for a project, and I looked at it, I looked at the title, I skimmed the chapter contents on Amazon and said, yeah, I'll read that. That'll be my book for the book review. I got way more enjoyment out of it than I thought I would. I had a great time reading it. It was a pleasure to read, and I got an A on the paper. So something right happened. Yay. 
Yeah. No, I mean, I'm definitely interested because, you know, especially that time period with what's happening in, at least in Chicago, when it comes to environmental public policy and all that, you know, this builds into the bigger point of one Chicago and the nation as a trading hub and it's developing consumer climate. So yeah, I know this is definitely interesting. And while not typically my, my forte, something that I would enjoy too. So. And that, I think you hit the nail on the head, not to cut Lauren or Derek off, but this book, and that's, again, I think that's the universal appeal of a subject like this, because not only is the book so well-written, but when you get a topic as interesting, or to me, as interesting as women in shopping and consumer culture, it does kind of have that universal appeal. So even if this isn't your forte, there's probably something in this book that you will enjoy. Cause like I said, she examines legal cases and, you know, this talks of fashion, but at the same time, this is also how women changed and changed the, the culture of downtown Chicago. Like I said, again, thank you guys out there for bearing with me. We literally found out a day or two ago that our guest wasn't going to be able to come on this episode and through trying to do life and get an episode together. I appreciate that we did have the time to talk about this book because this fun fact, this was supposed to be your July episode. That was the next time I was going to host an episode was in July. And this was my topic for then, but we're going to flip flop. So thank you guys for letting me talk to you about a shopper's paradise. Is there anything else y'all want to say before we get ready to sign off, go out, get the book. It's a heck of a read. It's really interesting. You'll like it. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We appreciate all of our listeners and the support we have received. Please rate, download, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. It's a small and simple thing that you can do to help out the show in a big way. If you'd like to interact with us, there are several ways you can do so. You can reach us at our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Operation Hist. You can shoot us an email at operationhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Or you can view us on our website, operationhistorypodcast.wordpress.com. All of our sources and show notes from this episode will be uploaded with the episode. Thanks again for joining us, and this is Operation History, signing off. history has no association with any of the institutions or organizations mentioned in this podcast. The views and expressions of the hosts and guests are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent any academic institutions, organizations, or companies that they currently work for or attend or that they have previously worked for or attended in the past. Thanks for listening and tune in next time for Operation History.
crush. Sorry, uh-huh. my cousin posted pictures of my niece, and she's so fucking cute. She's new. She's only a month old. Oh. Anyway. Do you have any corn jokes? I have so many. Oh, you want to hear one? Okay, so... <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> we just wanted probably. to know in general. <laughs> um, I mean, we were just asking did to not ask. land because I didn't pause long enough. Okay, let me think. It has to be a really dumb one. It needs to, like, rock Derek to his core. I'm going on Google for a good joke. Bad corn jokes. Oh, you're Googling. That's 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 the best way to start off this podcast. Cornjokes.com. Yes, please. There's a website. It. There's a website for corn jokes. You're damn right. Wisconsin and Nebraska are amazing additions to our country. <laughs> Did you hear that I gave the corn farmer a whole bunch of money? It was a major no, stock investment. <laughs> You know, they're not funny, but I always laugh. But they are funny. That, that really... <laughs> He's laughing so hard right now, and it makes me want to cry. <laughs> There's the, the, the duality of man here. Okay, it's time mm-hmm. to concentrate. Let's go. Breathe, you know. One's not able to breathe. The other one just wants death now. <laughs> what the fuck was that? that? That was definitely a car somewhere. What can I say? I meant that to be me. a volunteer. That was a car uh, So in this episode, we will be discussing a book about shopping in the 17th century in Chicago. Right. What, what century, Lauren? I don't what know. Century? I, don't, yeah, I have no. no idea. Not the 17th Yes, you know Chicago in the 17th century? Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I love oh the my established I know I did say the right Chicago. one. I did not realize that I said 17th century. I thought I said like 19th. <laughs> I don't even think it's the 19th. They think it's the 20th. Okay. Yeah. Is it the 20th? <laughs> I'm just going to say, I'm just going to redo and say shopping in Chicago. Yep. Girl, it's your (laughs) thing. I talk about buckle. You're fine. You're you're fine. You're totally fine. It's it's the vibe that fits so well that it's hysterically accurate. Here we go. Let's try that again. Go ahead. This is kind of unrelated, but Mm -hmm. kind of not. I just wanted to say, on this day in 1911 was the Triangle Shirt Waste Factory fire. Ooh, thank you for mentioning that because that is a, that's an episode one day that we're gonna do. Hit it, Dave. Okay. Punch no, it, Chewy. Oh, it's you. Oh, that, yeah. I don't give a shit who goes. Just somebody say something. Wow, Maria. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I am Dave. You know, it's even still somehow. The fuck I thought up. I genuinely I thought it was Dave. So, Shut the nope. fuck up and read the fucking closer. Yes, ma'am. You made mom mad. <laughs> now we're not going to get a lollipop after this. Shut up, Lauren! <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to read a closer I'm get my here. Own lollipop. I don't need mom's lollipop. Come on! I'm a big boy. I can buy my own lollipop. Oh my god, just read. 
Anyways. <clears throat>